Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 5 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, where we cater to the discerning spacefarer who is prepared to put their feet up and tuck into a story or two whilst exploring the galaxy. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before moving on to our selected reading recommendations. Joining me is our veteran explorer, bridge commander, and multiple zombie apocalyptic survivor, John Richardson from Starfleet Comms. Yay! <laughs> Should probably have can cheering at that point. Joining us for the first time on Data Slate is Lave Radio's black belt in Starship Origami, Colin Ford! Hey! Nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, that really was a wrestling intro, wasn't it? It was. Okay. Yeah. In, in the red corner. <laughs> The expert at Black Belt at Origami, so he will fold you in half. (laughs) Okay, folks, so what have we been doing? Colin, what have you been up to this week? Well, this week it's mostly been playing Elite Dangerous. I'm now flying about in a purple brick in that one, which I must admit I'm not enjoying as much as I had hoped. And I've decided to catch up on a few other things. So because the new Dusex sequel has been announced, I thought, well, I never completed the first one, which was Dusex Human Evolution. And I thought, right, okay then, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go through it and so I can tick it off my to-do list. And I must admit that that game is something else. Very, very immersive. And you find yourself playing it at, at silly o'clock in the morning. And it's got a good story behind it as well. There was Duex, and then there was yep. Duex Invisible War, which was supposed to be sort of okay. like 30 years afterwards or something, death like that. Yep. And they wrote themselves into a bit of a black hole on that one. Okay. Couldn't come up with a plot for the next one. So what they did was, all right, we'll go before the first one with a completely Ah, new character. That came out two years ago. Uh So it was all modern graphics. Oh, lovely. So if you can imagine something with the complexity of the plot line of the original Deus Ex, but with Mm. modern graphics, it's one of the best games I have played outside of Bioshock Mm. for that kind of first-person experience. And obviously has the same kind of detailed narrative interplay, you know, that interactivity that Duex was famous for in the first place. Oh yeah, they haven't scrimped on that at all. There's plenty of places to explore admittedly, I think I'm about a third of the way through and I'm having a ball with it. Okay. John, what have you been doing? Well, I was originally going to say I've not been doing anything but then I realised that's a big fat lie. So I have actually been doing something and I've been arranging all the Artemis stuff for Ah, um, LaveCon. What I've been doing is I've been getting together a uniform for this because we're going to be your trainers for this thing and we're going to be in uniform. And I'm also designing an insignia and creating that out of polymer clay. Oh, fantastic. So there's a little bit going on there and I'm also thinking about doing some other stuff related to that and obviously been reading books both of you as uh, as i hope for this evening because obviously we want to be talking about our selected reads later on lots and lots of books thank you so for me oh dear getting rid of worky stuff i've managed to clear a few assignments away so that's quite nice we've got still a little bit of marking and things today i have finished the data slate theme tune so the theme tune that we have at the start of the show and i have the full version which is going to play us out this evening and then that will go into the Lave Radio Music Medley. What else have we been doing? Reading. So I've, I've obviously I'm still reviewing for SF Book and a few other places at the moment. And I'm getting through a few more reading choices. Also, when I'm driving anywhere, I can plug the Kindle into the car. So I listen to the book on text-to-speech, which um, kind of gets through a few more. So yeah, you know, all, all good fun. Mm. 
Moving on then, in terms of our busy, busy weeks, let's talk a little bit about the latest news in science fiction and the latest news in science a little bit today. So to start with, we're going to take a look at the Hugo Awards controversy. Now, we spoke about this a few episodes ago where there is the issue of the block voting in the Hugo nominations Now, we're starting to get a little bit of fallout in relation to this because some of the people who have been put on the ballot as part of this block vote have decided to withdraw their nominations. Uh, And the latest person to do that, I believe, was sort of around the 15th of April, it's probably a little earlier, was Marcus Kluse. He had his novel Lines of Departure nominated, and um, he's now decided that he doesn't want to be part of this year's listing. Previous to that, we had Annie Bellet had withdrawn her nominated story, and Connie Willis, who has won many Hugo Awards and was going to be presenting Hugo Awards this year, she's now informed the committee and uh, the organisers that she's not prepared to present the awards. Mm. All a bit of a shame. Yeah, um, it is, but they're doing it from the perspective of having really good morals about it, I think, because Mm. they want to be recognised for their work rather than be recognised for being part of a block vote, I think, isn't it? That's that's where it comes from. I've been following this from a very, very distant point of view. It does feel that sort of this is basically, they've lost all relevance. There are too many people whose opinions would be important to give it a kind of balance Mm. that they're all leaving which it's in some ways, yeah, you can understand that after what's happened, but then if that's the case and they are leaving, then there's no one to fight that corner anymore. And they'll just be, the Hugo Awards will just be reduced to what everybody was scared they'd be turning into in the first place. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, the only thing is, is that there are quite a lot of websites and commentaries coming up where people are being directed and highlighted in terms of what has been block nominated mm. and what your options are in terms of in each category where things haven't been block nominated, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Quite a lot of those. And this has happened in the past, not necessarily on this scale, but it's happened in the past whereby in quite a lot of those categories, the voters have voted for no award. And I think actually that's probably what we're going to see, which is a shame. But at the same time, you can kind of see that if you were to stay in the nomination and you were to win, you're always going to be the person who won the Hugo that year. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because... Yeah, that will be the the year that you won it because everybody else ran away. Mm. Yeah, which is, you know, is a real, it's a massive real shame. difficulty. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, yeah, we were just going to touch briefly on that. I also wanted to mention we got a nice thank you. I don't know if you guys noticed. We got a nice thank you on Facebook from the Gemmel Awards for mentioning them the other week, which was lovely. So I've replied for us. I'm assuming that we're all looking forward to seeing who's going to win. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you've managed to vote. Okay, the next thing to look at is, and this was just something to highlight and something that came up for me on the British Science Fiction Association Facebook group this week. And as I mentioned that last week in terms of getting involved and seeing where there are things that they can get involved with, there is a a long-running science fiction and science review website called concatenation.org. Now, what they've been doing for a number of years is reviewing both non-fiction and also science fiction novels. And someone in the BSFA put up a plea for reviewers this week, basically saying we've got a lot of books that we're being sent. We're quite a popular website. We've been around for a long time. They've been around since 
1987. Wow. So, John, you've been eclipsed here. Yes, They've that's absolutely... You know, there are other people in the world, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Concatenation, basically, we're looking for people to review some of the science fiction books that they get in. So, if anybody's interested, if you guys are interested, if any of our listeners are interested, you can head on over to www.concatenation.org. That's C-O-N-C-A-T-E-N. ATION.org. So if you're interested in getting into reviews and doing some reviews for a website, then nice place to go. That's brilliant. It does sound good, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Okay, and then moving on, the trailer of the week. Now, for me, we talked about Star Wars last week. We got our geek on for Star Wars last week. And for me, this week has to be the new trailers for Mad Max. Now, I love the original films. I like the films because they were a a legacy. And I I kind of, I know a lot of people talk about the third one, Beyond the Thunderdome, as being the film and and everything else. I like the first one. I really like the first one. Yeah, I think the first one was absolutely brilliant. It was certainly the grittier, realer one, if you like, of, of, of the three. And I think only people talk about the third one because it was dreadfully awful, if that is even a phrase. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, if we're going to put words together in a strange way, this is the podcast to do it. I have seen two and three. I've missed out on the pleasures of one. And I must admit, two obviously is the more superior of the ones that I've seen. But I've had a quick look over at this new Mad Max one. And it's not supposed to be a reboot. It's supposed to be a sequel, isn't it? From the trailers, you don't get that much information in terms of whether it's connected, how it's connected, and so on and so forth. I'm sure we'll find out more as things go on. Mm. But all of the films are kind of standalone. They don't really need each other. No, true. Because he has this sort of introduction plot, and then you know at the end he gets left behind. You know, that's <laughs> basically, you know, he gets left, doesn't he, on his own or whatever. So, But it, it's directed by the original director. It's directed by George Miller, which that kind of gives it that added level of authenticity mm. for me. What makes the trailers good then? What drew you to the trailers? For me, in terms of the three original films, the first one is immediately after the apocalypse. It's a bit like a society that's breaking down, which is why I like the first one. But the second two, they have that desert car chase thing going on, don't they? You know, the whole spikes on the cars. And you've certainly got that look, got that edge to this film. All right. Um, I've always thought of that of Mad Max as sort of the post-apocalyptic version of the High Plains Drifter. You know, the Clint Eastwood High yeah, Plains yeah. Drifter. I must admit, just looking through this, it does seem that Miller, he says that the last thing he wanted to do was another Mad Max movie. And then the script <laughs> came along and he said that that just changed it. Because okay. apparently originally there was supposed to be a fourth Mad Max with Mr. Gibson. Yeah, But that was about the time of the Iraq war. Looking at the cast as well, Tom Hardy, well, he's a brilliant mm. actor. And this is kind of a film where he's being given the opportunity to be a sort of iconic lead. And I don't mean that to kind of denigrate any of his previous work by any shape or form. But this is an iconic character, isn't it? Mm. Mad Max is an iconic character. So he's awesome. Charlize Theron is awesome. Yes, I'll agree with Nicholas that. Holt is absolutely fantastic. And to see him in such a different role, certainly as we've seen him in the trailers, I think is, is a wonderful thing. And also the fact that he's come from being a childhood star and made that transition is great. So I, I, you know, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for him as well. 
Okay, so connecting to what we were talking about concatenation and how concatenation occasionally reviews a little bit of science and stuff, the latest news that we have that's circulating the interwebs at the moment is about NASA and a warp drive. Yes. Guys, what's going on with this? Well, I've noticed on Facebook, it was just a couple of hours ago, actually, and it was a trending on Facebook, which is not unusual because most things do trend at one point or another on Facebook. But uh, it was actually trending that NASA have accidentally, again, I think, <laughs> discovered the possibility of creating a warp bubble, a warp field, which would allow the possibility of some form of warp drive. So, and I think they're repeating tests or something. That's the, the piece that we picked up from that. What do you reckon, Colin? I've heard about this EM drive before. Mm. And we've, we've had people uh, sort of said, oh, it's going to be, you'll have the Starship Enterprise with, within 50 years or something daft like that. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's turned out that it's not worked. It's not worked how they wanted. However, this time, it does seem that something has been proven it's been We're repeated, not, hasn't it? It's been yeah, repeated. It's, it's actually yeah. managed to get consistent results. Yeah. Now, the EM is based on a theory of special relativity that is possible to convert electrical energy into thrust without the need to expel any form of repellent, which mm. it does like, sound like something like you need mm. some kind of propellant in order to get it to work. Yeah. So, uh, I, don't know the, I don't know the science. I haven't got the brains no, for sure. the science, but... It's, I welcome the news. I think this is this is really good. I mean, e even if it does turn out to be one of those, oh no, not one of those fluke things again, at least it's driving the attention and things are being said about it and it's it's got a bit of focus behind it and people are looking at it. It gives you a glimpse in the fact that people are actually still looking at this sort of thing. It sort of chimes in with the way in which sometimes science fiction you reflect into science. Now, I think what I would say is I'm the bear with the smallest brain in this regard because when it comes down to sciencey things I struggle occasionally so we aren't talking about the idea of immediately people being able to fold space and disappear across the universe no it is a small amount of being able to change relative distance isn't it at the moment they're talking about a bubble yeah and a bubble that that means that things that are inside the bubble appear to be traveling faster than they should be able to travel. Yeah. I think that's the extent of it. And what they then want to do is go and test it in a vacuum. So sounds like they're going to be packing up a crate and sending it to the space station, I guess. Yeah. I mean, even, the, even if they do get that side of it sorted out, there are other considerations that need to be sorted out as well, such as radiation shielding technology. So before we even consider having a warp drive, we need to have some method of protecting the humans from the radiation, you know, such as the radiation that comes directly from the sun in the form of the weather, if you like, it's called from there, and all of the other stuff that's floating around. It's still nice news, though, isn't it? Yeah, it opens up the possibility of exploration again. Yeah. Because you're looking at Mars and you're looking at the moon, and what we've come back with is, well, the moon's boring because there's nothing there. So they say. Yeah. Uh, and Mars, well, it could be quite interesting, but it's so far away and it's going to be so difficult to get there. Yeah. But if, uh, they, if they have something like this, even if it, it just to spark the interest, something to get some momentum going, it might, it might fire off the imagination that wouldn't consider the thing before. Yeah. And all of this really on the day that messengers planned to crash into Mercury. So and wouldn't it be lovely if we actually managed to actually get somewhere and actually pilot something back? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's another good excuse to paste a load of pictures of <laughs> Star Trek ships and stuff across Facebook. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's got to be a good thing. It does. Yeah, keeps me happy anyway. Okay, so we're going to head to an advert break, and when we come back, we're going to start with Colin's book choice. Your ship is a miracle of engineering. Capable of handling the most intense situations. But with no sound in a vacuum, how do you keep up with your ship? Introducing Simulated Sound, where your ship recreates the sound of battle so no vital signal is lost to the vacuum. But wait! Why be stuck with the sounds of death and destruction? We offer alternative sound effects for all encounters. Activating cargo dump. Change the sound of battle with our choice of audio packs. Why not feel sexy in battle? Installing sound pack. Or go for a cute farmyard scene. Or even our classy stress reliever. Impact in five, four, three, two, one. New Stroudbury Sound Packs. Changing the sound of battle. Greetings, Commanders. Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. And welcome back, listeners. So, Colin, you're the expert on storage at Lave Station. What have you found in the packing crates? Well, I have found the first culture novel by Ian M. Banks. Consider Plebis. Now, I haven't read any of the culture novels before, and a lot of people have said, oh, you've got to read them, because you can't be considered a geek or a nerd unless you have read these. Mm. In fact, Ben demanded my geek identification card back. Didn't know I had one. So I'll just read the blurb on the back. Sure. It says, The war raged across the galaxy. Billions had died. Billions more were doomed. Moons, planets, and the very star themselves faced destruction. Cold-blooded, brutal, and worse, random. The Adirians fought for their faith, and the culture fought for its moral right to exist. Principles were at stake, and there could be no surrender. Admittedly, this is one of the first... The first culture novel was also the one that dealt with a war. Mm. But there's not that much war in it, <laughs> if you see what I mean. If you're, if you're after stuff that involves great big space battles and massive fleets firing off shots at one another, this isn't the book. Because that's what I was expecting, because everyone said, oh, it's a great space opera. But instead, I got a, quite a nice little personal story about a changer. Now, dear old Ian M. Banks passed away recently, and you can pick up these books everywhere. I think there's in every bookshop, Amazon, I don't think I've ever gone into a bookshop and not seen at least one Ian M. Banks book somewhere. John, have you read any Ian M. Banks? You know what, I'm almost ashamed to say that I've not read any of them. 
Oh dear. Yes. So, and and it, you're such a, a star in the science fiction realm. I, I can't believe I've not actually read any of them. Now, I do remember actually picking up one and trying to read mm. it, and maybe I didn't have the time, and maybe or maybe I didn't have the interest or something, and I ended up putting it down. And I can't remember which book that was. I'm just looking at some of them now. But looking at the reviews of this book, this book seems to be very, very good in terms of the popularity anyway. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree with that. I had to do it in fits and spurts because of the rest of real life brackets, TM. But even in the first couple of pages, you can see where the dark sense of humor that um, he's famous for comes from. I don't think I'll be giving anything away, but the method that they've come up with executing prisoners in the first chapter is that basically you are shoved in a cesspit and you are pooed on until you die. Oh dear. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds like parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> the way he handles this is, is a very sort of gallows humour, which being Glaswegian, that actually quite appeals to me. It's interesting because I went to a talk at EasterCon with his agent. He was on a panel with a few other people at, uh, at EasterCon and um, was talking through how they used to do book signings, you know, and how they used to do the tour. You basically tour the country, go to a load of bookshops and, and this, that and the other. And he said that they would take Ian M. Banks around these bookshops and they would sit him down. And in some places it would be busy. And in some places he'd sit there all day and see three people. Yeah. And now because of all the, you know, the fuss and everything else, because obviously he passed away before Long Con and he was going to be the guest of honor for Long Con and, you know, was very ill prior to that, but he was involved in the bid for Worldcon to come back to London. You know, it was all going to be a, a real celebration of his work and obviously was a bit more of a memorial of his work last year. And everybody is kind of talking about Ian M. Banks and talking about how we've lost such a great writer. And there are many journals have devoted entire issues to, to Ian M. Banks, similar to now how then starting to talk about Terry Pratchett, which, you know, real shame. So it's interesting how that focus now turns and perhaps people who didn't know him or, or had kind of put him on the reading queue and then walked away now are coming back to pick him off the shelf. I read The Player of Games. I have The Use of Weapons, and I have considered Phlebus, isn't it? Uh, is it right. uh, Plebus or Phlebus? I have them here. I rattled through The Player of Games. I've struggled a bit with The Use of Weapons, and I haven't got to consider Phlebus yet. So, But certainly from The Player of Games, it's not absolute page-turning all the time. It's a very thoughtful, meticulously planned-out society. And you're on the side of the culture people in The Player of Games, but you start to gradually realise just how much they aren't like you. They're actually quite different as things move forwards and you realise the people that the player of games goes and plays his games with, you know, very different in themselves. And at the end, you sort of get a reflection on the different tenets of these two societies, almost like a, a sociology A-level of conflict theory and consensus theory. All very, very interesting. Do you get that in Phlebus? No, you don't, actually. It's shown from the point of view of one of the culture's enemies. The okay. changer, Horza, in, in this case, yeah. who's, the, who's the main protagonist, he's working for the Iridians, who are fighting against the culture. Uh, and the, and it's, it's interesting to see that there's a, there's a little bit of jealousy there from people who aren't in the culture and this kind of, oh, how, should, how should I put it, some kind of myths are built up around it. Certainly the culture itself sort of feels a bit like Asimov's Spacers, um, if you read the robot series. 
you know they're very intellectual they're very set apart from humanity and and in in Asimov you have the the people from earth and you've got the spaces and the spaces feel sort of a bit more refined and a little bit more withdrawn and they have a more of an intellectual standpoint on many of the aspects of humanity as it were but they're quite they're sort of cold yes. and you get a little bit of that from the culture in different respects yeah. they feel kind of cold and kind of withdrawn mm. you know it's really weird you're kind of expecting um you know, a big space opera but instead this yeah. kind of thing reminded me of actually playing a whole lot of science fiction based role playing games like traveler like um yeah. or mega traveler even uh, mm-hmm. where you have the this small party flying around in a beat up ship all on a quest to do something but they're mm-hmm. not quite sure what and to be honest they're not all that good at what they do <laughs> <laughs> i take it you enjoyed it uh yes i did it threw me a couple of times because mm-hmm. every single time i was beginning to get attached to a character something bad happened <laughs> Oh, oh dear. Yes. There's a little bit of um, Game of Thrones going on here. It, it's all chasing after a mind which has gone missing from the culture. And it's, fall, mm-hmm. it's fallen on the planet of the dead, mm-hmm. uh, which are protected by Hose's people uh, or looked after by changes. Now, changes of people that uh, are humanoids that can change their appearance and, and take on the form of others. Uh, but there's not that many of them left. And Hoses left this planet of the dead to fight the culture as a as a secret agent because if you can change yourself, that's exactly what you're going to be. It seemed to be that it moves along at a reasonable pace, but then sometimes it just sort of stuttered a little. Mm-hmm. But then, when once you got past the stutter, you just got rewarded by something which was fantastic. The game in the arena just before this big space station is destroyed. It was mm. absolutely fantastic where you have three or four lives, only those three or four lives are actually real people, mm. which who are electrocuted and wiped out as you lose your game. Oh, nice. Yes. It's kind of almost, because I mean, it's 1988, so it's almost prophetic in terms of, well, I, I guess, you know, you had that going on in computer games then, but yeah, to sort of bring in reality, you know, blurring reality into that, it's quite interesting. We've seen a lot of films do that later, things like Gamer mm-hmm. or perhaps Surrogates. Not quite the same, but you know, has a way in which you've got that kind of avatar that you're driving. I'm afraid I haven't seen Surrogates, but I have seen Gamer, yeah. which yeah, I, I actually, for a Jared Butler film, I actually quite enjoyed. Sure. Okay. So that's Consider Phlebas. We've got it on Kindle Edition at £5.51, hardcover 2922 Paperback 719, audio download 1485, audio CD £80.48. Wow. Wow. There are also there are used and new options. Uh, certainly the, the used options go all the way down to a penny. It's been out a while. It's been out a long time. I'm assuming that these are, you know, perhaps some of the newer editions are related to a new reprint with, uh, with a nice new cover on it. So, you know, whichever you prefer. I've got one of the older ones and I'm perfectly happy with it. So, yeah. Okay, we're going to head to an ad break then, and we'll come back with John's book choice. Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Attention! Attention! Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. 
second technician forester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging. the science fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July, just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. Navy. We want you for Adventures Unlimited. Just last week I was mixing Sidewinder Slammers at a CD space bar. I wasn't even pilot registered. And now I have a ship and a basic starting mission for the Federal Navy. Owing to recent actions in the Lave region, the Federal Navy now seeks to recruit another 1,000 entry-level pilots. We need you to add your strength to our military machine. I'm going to see the galaxy. We have missions for all pilots, regardless of combat experience or flight hours. Come and talk to us and we'll get you on the military ladder. Join the Federal Navy. Make a real pilot of yourself. Or die trying. Wait, what's that? Is that, is that a ship coming? Are they looking for me? What do they? And we're back. So, John, you've taken a tour of the 21st Century Station archives. What have you found? Well, if you recall last episode, we were talking about some awards. We were talking about the Arthur C. Clarke Award 2015. And this book was shortlisted for them uh, at Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel. Ah, cool. Okay, so you managed to get through one of the shortlisted books well, I'm st- within a week. Well, actually, I have a small confession to make. I'm about three quarters of the way through this one, but I feel okay. qualified to be able to make a review, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay, so, sounds fine. Yeah. So tell us about it. Right, well, basically, uh, a little bit of blurb about this one. The initial description, the title, if you like, Station Eleven. What drew me to that was I was thinking about space stations and that was what the conversation was. I couldn't have been further from the truth, right? This (laughs) this book has got nothing to do with space stations. (laughs) This book has got everything to do with post-apocalyptic world. Yeah. So, oh well, well you're, of course, you're, you're yeah. like a of course you're like, you're, you're like a pig in mud. Yeah, you love post-apocalyptic worlds. So I was, I thought, ooh, how pleasant, right? So I thought, right, I'll give this a read then. So now then, this is the blurb. What was lost in the collapse? Almost everything, almost everyone, but there is still such beauty. One snowy night in Toronto, famous actor Arthur Leander dies on stage whilst performing the role of a lifetime. That same evening, a deadly virus touches down in North America. The world will never be the same again. Twenty years later, Kirsten, an actress in the Travelling Symphony, performs Shakespeare in the settlements that have grown up since the collapse. 
but then her newly hopeful world is threatened. If civilization was lost, what would you preserve, and how far would you go to protect it? So that's the blurb. And I initially thought, mm, Shakespeare, go, that's going to be dead boring, that is. And uh, I really got quite into it because the opening chapter is a performance of King Lear. And uh, the whole book is written in such a way where you're looking at the disaster happening, you know, in, I don't know what, what time scale this is. This is going to be sort of present day, I guess. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then it flicks to one of the characters 20 years hence after year zero, which is when the disaster happened. It then just sort of butterflies there and you get to know these people and the descriptions are just so well done. You feel sure. very involved with that character. And then it flits back to year zero when the disaster happens and you meet the forerunner or a connection to the character you've just learnt about. And yeah. there's another connection being made to another character that you then get involved with and is beautifully done. I would actually describe it as exquisite. So Certainly in the review section, there's a lot here that's saying beautifully done, yeah. beautiful work, very, very cleverly put together, inventive and exciting, wistful. Yeah, you there's know. a little bit of that. There's no, well, there is a baddie, but there's no sort of like, this is going to be doom all over again sort of thing. So there's not this mm -hmm. completely bleak outlook. It's actually a little bit hopeful because, you know, there are pockets of civilization popping up. There are people who clearly care about each other. So, you know, people haven't lost the humanity. And it's really enjoyable. But if you were looking at it, to go, right, I want to see the uh, main protagonist and they're going to do this, that and the other and I'm going to end up with either a really happy or a really sad ending. I don't think you're going to get that in this book. Mm. I think this book is more about the journey and I'm about halfway to three quarters of the way through and I'm really enjoying that journey at the moment. I've actually gone back a couple of chapters just to reread them. Not because I didn't get what was said, but because I wanted to make sure I got what was said. Sure. You know, and yeah. when, when it's got a draw to do that, and you're not just reading it for the sake of reading it, I think that's a sign of a good book. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to be delighted because she's written more. Yeah, has she? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'm not doing another one just yet. <laughs> okay. I think there's at least four of them in the series. Right. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> well, it, you see that apparently at the end of this one, it does leave itself open for a sequel, which now that I've read that, it, it's kind of like spoiled it a little bit for. Oh, but, sorry. But, uh, you know, I, I like it. The, the way it's written is absolutely wonderful. In fact, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs if that's okay. Is that right? Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, the king stood in a pool of blue light unmoored. This was Act Four of King Lear a winter night at the Elgin Theatre in Toronto. Earlier in the evening, three little girls had played a clapping game on stage as the audience entered, childhood versions of Leah's daughters, and now they returned as hallucinations in the mad scene. The king stumbled and reached for them as they flitted here and there in the shadows. His name was Arthur Leander. He was 51 years old, and there were flowers in his hair. Dost thou know me? the actor playing Gloucester asked. I remember thine eyes well enough, Arthur said, distracted by the child version of Cordelia, and this was when it happened. There was a change in his face. He stumbled. He reached for a column, 
but misjudged the distance and struck it hard with the side of his hand. So that's a style of writing that's in there, and it's it just absolutely wonderful. It just sort of drifts mm. you along, you know. No, it certainly sounds it. And I mean, working modern culture into a sort of dystopian future gives something a, a sort of an anchor point, doesn't it? Mm. And, you know, you can kind of think about, you can ruminate on what's been lost and what's been kept. Yes, um, and, and is... that's that's what the book does. You, d- you definitely get that. There, there are scenes in it where... There are families who live in, say, for instance, Walmarts. Mm. So families are actually living in Walmarts rather than on a housing estate or whatever. So they live in those areas because they're, I guess, they were where people gathered mm. rather than uh, anywhere else. And, and those have turned into the habitation areas. In fact, if you get two or three families together, that's actually called a town. So, oh, well, there we go. Yeah, and it, and it was it was just the way it's been done was absolutely brilliant. Of course, you've got the baddie. But I'm not going to tell you who that is. You can you can buy the book. <laughs> Absolutely. No, your tour through the Clark Award list mm. will be very interesting then. And we can kind of make some comparisons as we go on yeah. to sort of see which of which of them we prefer as things go through. So so yeah, okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Good. Okay, so where are we getting it from? It clearly it's on Kindle. Colin, what's your take on dystopian future? Are they the kind of novel you'll tend to go for? Well, dystopian future has its place, I think. There are a couple of novel series that I really do like with that kind of thing. The full-on Mad Max Wasteland, I'm, I'm not really a fan of. Right. But the, the dystopian future, you know, the cyberpunk stroke, corporate corruption stroke, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, that, that I do like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, from what I've seen so, from this... This is kind of sounds like um, a level in Half-Life 2 where you're going from station to station through complete and utter wasteland. Mm. Yeah, but the, what this also has is it, it's got that wasteland, but this is a traveling symphony. So it's like a company of people who are actually going there and they're, they're putting on theater performances and it's got full orchestra backing and stuff like this. So there's a definite sense of artistic flow about it and mm. there's heart in it, you know, that... I, I don't know how to really explain that, but there's definite heart there and warmth. And, well, and, and it's, it's such a counterpoint against the people have been starving for the last few years and the initial thing after year zero was everybody was killing each other. Mm. So, you know, it's a really good counterpoint to that. It's excellent. And it's a different angle, isn't it? Mm. You know, to come in from a from an acting troupe wandering around a post-apocalyptic well, you, that's kind of if you'd asked, quite different. Yeah, if you'd asked me last week if I was going to read that sort of book, I would have told you, no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly that's that's a winner then. Yeah. Okay, so where can we get hold of this, John? Right, uh, Kindle edition is three fifty nine, uh, and clearly that's from Amazon. Looking on Amazon again, hardcover is eight sixty six, paperback is three eighty five, and one thing I discovered as well: oh, the audio CD is thirty two pound ten, which is used. Oh. Wow. Goodness gracious. Then, of course, you've got the feature that I didn't realize existed, and that's the audible narration. And I actually got that for this book to see, you know, to help me through it, if you like. And uh, that, that's, I think that's about three quid or something like that. So, okay, interesting. Yeah. Right. So we'll head out to an ad break and then we'll come back with our final choice. That'd be mine. Pilot, are you feeling isolated? Alone, with only the cold rays of a dying neutron star to keep you company. Then you need to lock your coordinates onto the EDC. 
At the EDC Network, you'll meet thousands of like-minded spacers. You'll get the latest trading news, entertainment news, current affairs, and blatant gossip. Are you looking for a new career avenue? A wingman? A friend to share those lonely hours sat shooting beryllium out of asteroids? We have just the people you need to talk to. So power that frameshift into overdrive and log onto the EDC today. Subscription to the Elite Dangerous community on Spacebook is free for the initial month and will then be billed at 50,000 credits per year on a tri-monthly basis. Zero cancellation policy is in place and will be vigorously enforced. In-system travel? Sometimes it takes so long. I have tools for all kinds of circumstances on my ship. But the one thing I don't have a tool for is uneven tan lines. I just want to look like a million credits. But when you're living for days on a ship with processed and filtered air, it really dries out your skin. I use Better Hope Goldening Tan Cream. It just boosts your confidence. I don't believe that beauty is only skin deep, but now I really do look like a million credits. Even my friends mistook me for a genuine gold skin. Jameson and Jameson. Upgrades and services for your body. And we're back and we're down to the final choice. So my choice is Dark Eden by Christopher Beckett. Now, I first discovered Christopher Beckett's work back when he was a short story writer for Interzone. And he still occasionally writes short stories. I've not seen them in Interzone recently, but certainly for a long period of time he was writing. You know, He was a staple of Interzone magazine as a short story writer. And I picked up quite a few of the, the copies of it and uh, had the privilege of reading quite a lot of Chris uh, Chris Beckett's work. To then discover him as a novelist was great, because I already knew that he's a good writer, I already knew he had a good style, and to find that he'd done a few novels that were available and I could go take a look at was great. You know, I was really looking forward to it. And SF Book had on their list the sequel to Dark Eden, which is Mother of Eden, to be reviewed. So I'm, I'm about halfway through that at the moment, but I thought I kind of can't read Mother of Eden without reading the first one. So I picked up Dark Eden, got it on the Kindle, and I read it in three days. It's absolutely tremendous. It's an Arthur C. Clarke Award winner from 2013, so fits in nicely with what we were talking about about the the shortlist Mm -hmm. last week and, and obviously John's choice. And also, it's a really interesting story about preserving culture again. Mm. So I'll read you the blurb. And I don't think the blurb quite does it justice. But anyway, you live in Eden. You're a member of the family, one of 532 descendants of Angela and Tommy. You shelter beneath the light and warmth of the forest's lantern trees, hunting woolly buck and harvesting tree candy. Beyond the forest lie the treeless mountains of snowy dark and a cold so bitter and night so profound that no one man has ever crossed it. The oldest amongst you recount legends of a world where light came from the sky where men and women made boats that could cross between worlds. One day the oldest say they will come back for you. You live in Eden. You are a member of the family, one of the 532 descendants of two marooned explorers. You huddle, slowly starving beneath the light and warmth of geothermal trees, confined to one barely habitable valley of a startling alien sunless world. 
After 163 years and six generations of incestuous inbreeding, the family is riddled with deformity and feeble-mindedness. Your culture is an infantile stew of half-remembered fact and devolved ritual that stifles innovation and punishes independent thought. You are John Redlanton. You will break the laws of Eden, shatter the family and change history. You will be the first to abandon hope, the first to abandon the old ways, the first to kill another, the first to venture into the dark, and the first to discover the truth about Eden. Mm, interesting. I mean, there's a little bit of Lord of the Flies to the ideas as well. You, you get a little bit of sort of children talking to each other and trying to make sense of their world and creating their own ritual. And you have this sort of half-remembered fog of where they came from, which is, is a, a really interesting legacy, mm. you know, because they're... It's it's Eden in more ways than one. They've called it Eden, and also there were two people originally. There was Angela and Tommy. Yeah, the parallels with the original yeah. uh, religions and stuff like this are, are quite clear, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, you know. And then they've got their rituals. They have. They believe that uh, that there were five settlers in the first place. There was Angela and Tommy and the three companions, and the three companions went back on a starship, and that the people from Earth will return. So they all stay in this one valley, waiting for the people from Earth. And they've waited for 163 years, mm. and no one's come back yet. Mm. And then you have the sort of the little bits of remembered culture that they know how to do, or the little bits of remembered technology and the things that they don't know how to do anymore, which are quite interesting. The ways in which they deal with the interbreeding and the, you know, the genetic weaknesses that come about, how they... As a culture, how they absorb that, how they they talk to each other about it, what they do about it, is very interesting. Yeah, it was a fantastic read, really fantastic. When you see that blurb there, yeah. first thing that you think of is, oh, hang on a second, is this something like The Village, that horrible Shemalanda mm. film? Oh yes. Uh, whether put enough that they've gone and cordoned themselves off on purpose. I mean, obviously, I haven't I haven't read it, but the 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 book, but the, from the blurb, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I thought of. I can't get the the parallels between that and Earth out of my mind. Yeah, I think the your culture is an infantile stew of half remembered fact and devolved ritual that stifles innovation and punishes independent thought. That's like us. <laughs> well, there are. You say we're all deformed and feeble-minded. No, I'm saying that. Yeah, we've got a fairly decent gene pool, but I mean, imagine if we didn't. <laughs> so well, there man, are. Little those genes, boy. <laughs> there are moments in it, you know. Certainly, they with John Red Lantern, he's effectively he's trying to say, why haven't we tried to cross the cold yeah. dark? Mm. And you know, the rest of the family aren't having it, and they, you know, they don't want him to do it. And eventually, obviously stuff happens yeah and then you've got the the rituals around things that they have they've got wooden models of the old spaceships and they reenact the story of their ancestors mm. as a ritual the eldest of them is revered as as being the the sort of the chief and the person in charge even though they're blatantly kind of yeah utterly yeah. this one person you know, at one point they end up with one oldest left and he was a child when Tommy was an old man. So he he remembers Tommy just. And that's why he's still revered. 
and basically everybody else has to do for him. They have to, you know, make sure he's all right. And, you know, and they all have their jobs to do. They all have stuff to do. They all have things to do. The planet itself has, has this amazingly different identity to it. Heat comes from the soil, comes from below ground. Trees are burning hot. So when they cut the trees down, the trees, if the sap splashes you, it'll burn you. And there are parallels to... They've obviously named things in this world after things that were in the old world. Yeah. They have a person called Michael the Name Giver, who was one of the, the three that went back on the ship. And, you know, and he gave things names. So they've got names for stuff. They've got names for bats. They've got, you know, names for bucks. They call them, you know, a lot of the, the creatures and stuff. So it it doesn't feel like it's not one of those ones where you've dealt with a colony and you've kind of, the colony is sort of very similar to ours. It's got its own culture, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, it really feels like... And where you feel those little hints of legacy, those little hints of remembered past, you kind of grasp hold of those a little bit as a reader. But at the same time, you're, you're re-examining them in a slightly different way. Yes. Yeah. Did you, when you were reading it, did you mm. feel as if you were being convinced by it or did you feel that you didn't have to be convinced by it? I would have said the latter. You know, it's first-person narration from a, a multitude of perspectives. You get you know, different people as the, the sort of main character, uh, depending on which chapter you're in. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, they talk about their relationships with each other. And they talk about what they're doing next. John Redlanton, for example, is all about, why can't we do this? You know, why, why haven't we tried? We need to think about new things. And you know, part of what he thinks about is this idea that, earth aren't coming mm. so he violates some of the rituals i'm not you know giving anything yeah. away by saying that i won't be specific but he violates some of the rituals and that kind of stirs the conflict and you know and sort of picks it up and makes things move forward so yeah i mean it's it's a great read it it doesn't feel if i think about some of my older things that i read when i was a kid both marion zimmer bradley and Anne mccaffrey played this card in that they had sort of fairly fantasy novels that were kind of hearkening back to an original science fiction premise of a colony. Mm -hmm. This feels grittier and it feels more sort of native. It's got more of its own standalone culture. It has its own patois. It's got a little bit of, if you, you think about the way in which, if we're discussing Mad Max, if you think about the way in which some of the, the language is used in the dialogue of that, you have your own language here. You know, it's it's bits and pieces. It's a mash of, of old Earth phrases with new Earth or new Eden phrases. They repeat words. So they say good, good and bad, bad. And, you know, Instead and, of objectives. And, yeah. Yeah. They basically they repeat words, which is, is very interesting. So it gives it this sort of usual or this familiarity and an unfamiliarity, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. It does sound very interesting. You've, I think you've done it again, you know. I can't believe you've done it again. Yeah, it's added to the wish list. <laughs> oh. <laughs> do you want to do a, an extract? Chapter one, John Redlanton. Thud, thud, thud. Old Roger was banging a stick on our group log to let us up and out of our shelters. Wake up, you lazy new hares. If you don't hurry up, the dip will be over before we even get there and all the bucks will have gone back up to the dark. Hmph, hmph. Mmph, went the trees all round us, pumping and pumping hot sap from underground. Mmm, went forest. And from over Peckham Way came the sounds of axes from Batwing Group. They were starting their waking a couple of hours ahead of us, and they were already busy cutting down a tree. What? grumbled my cousin Jerry, who slept in the same house as me. 
I've only just got to sleep. His little brother Jeff propped himself up on one elbow. He didn't say anything but watched with his big interested eyes as Jerry and I threw off our sleep skins, tied on our waist wraps and grabbed our shoulder wraps and our spears. Get your asses out here, you lazy lot, came David's angry, spluttery voice. Get your asses out fast, fast, before I come in and get you. Jerry and me crawled out of our shelter. Sky was glass black, starry swirl was above us, clear as a white lantern in front of your face, and the air was cool, cool, as in a dip when there's no cloud between us and stars. Most of the grown-ups in the hunting party were gathered together already, with spears and arrows and bows. David, Met, Old Roger, Lucy Lou, a bit of smell was wafting all round our clearing, and the smoke was lit up by the fire and the shining lantern trees. Our group leader Bella and Jerry's mum, my kind ugly aunt Sue, were roasting bats for breakfast. They weren't coming with us, but they got up early to make sure we had everything we needed. There you go. Gives you a bit of an idea, doesn't it? It mm. does, actually. Yeah, it does sound very Lord of the Flies, actually. Yeah. It's got a real patois. Mm. It's the way it's, it's stark. And you kind of know it's this regressed society who have their, you know, their particular language. But at the same time, they've also, you know, you know there's this science fiction legacy to it. Things like Starry Swirl. He's talking about the stars in the night sky, but that's their phrase. Interesting. Brilliant. Hmm. So, yeah, so this is Dark Eden by Chris Beckett. You can find it on Amazon on Kindle at £3.59. Hardcover is eighteen ninety nine. Paperback is seven nineteen. Audio download, £16.60. And there are used and new options underneath as well. So gives you plenty of opportunity to, to take a look. And I'll be doing the review for the sequel. That'll come out fairly soon on sfbook.com. That's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email us at info at laveradio.com. You can get us on Facebook at Lave Radio, at Lave Radio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozzer 101 to your Skype contacts. You can also join our TeamSpeak server, where commanders come to hang out and chat, laveradio.teamspeak3.com. You can find more information about Starfleet comms over on the website, www.starfleetcoms.com where you can catch up with Commander Max Torps as he explores the galaxy in Elite Dangerous. And if you feel like a little company on a late night adventure in the stars, check out Commander Late Night Phone Booth on Top Shift. Episodes available on YouTube. Playing us out by request from listener David Allen is the full version of Data Slate, our theme tune. Yes, I finally found time to finish it off. Enjoy reading those books, Commanders. Bye! Bye!
And a quick shout out. Writer Tim C. Taylor, author of the Human Legion military science fiction series, will be attending LaveCon on the 10th and 11th of July. So if you'd like to meet him and chat to him about his work, he'll be there. You can pick up Marine Cadet on Amazon now for 99p.